Beloved, when you hear the word priest, what comes to mind? Do you have any vision or images that come to mind? It's possible that some of you may have a picture come to mind of uh, a guy with a black top and a white reverse collar. Uh, others, especially in the community in which we live, certainly uh, outside and maybe even some here this morning, if you don't come from a background of a Bible teaching church, you might hear the word priest and think of two guys, two young dudes in white shirts with thin black ties riding around on bicycles. Because in the LDS uh, church, they are priests. Uh, in fact, it says in the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, it says this, quote, There are in the church two priesthoods, namely Melchizedek and Aaronic. The Melchizedek priesthood holds the right of presidency and has power and authority over all the offices in the church in all ages of the world to administer in spiritual things, end quotes. Well, that's what they think. That's what they understand. And my understanding, I've been told, is that the little guys riding around on the bikes are actually part of the Melchizedek priesthood in their mentality. So that's what the LDS church says. But let's ask the question, what does God say? We know that God tells us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, that there is clarity in the word of God, and certainly it has to do with the aspect with the office with the ministry of priests beloved please open your bibles to hebrews chapter 5 we turn to the most old testament book of the new testament books and our passage this morning is chapter 5 verses 1 through 10 but what i'm going to do is i'm going to read from chapter 4 verse 14 because verses 14 through 16 set the stage and feed into what we have here in chapter 5 verse 1 beloved this is the word of god please listen hebrews chapter 4 beginning in verse 14 the author pastor preacher writes since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens jesus the son of god let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. 
And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God that has been read in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it as such. Now, if we know anything about Hebrews, if you've been here as we've been going through Hebrews, we understand that the central overarching theme is the absolute infinite superiority of the Son, of Jesus. And it is a book of tremendous strong contrast between the imperfect and the perfect, between the incomplete and the complete, between the earthly and the heavenly, between that which is passing away and that which is abiding between the finite and the infinite between the old and the new and what we have in our text this morning in chapter 5 verses 1 through 10 is another powerful contrast in verses 1 through 4 we see the inferiority of the old covenant high priest in contrast with the superiority of the new covenant high priest the man Jesus. It is a comparison between the inferior and the superior, between the old and the new. Another way to look at it as well is in verses 1 through 4, we have the qualifications, and in verses 5 through 10, we have the qualified, the singular qualified man, Jesus. Now, we know that the author told us, if you're here last Sunday, or even if we read through it here, the author tells us in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4 that there's a great priesthood being exercised in heaven right now. There is worship going on in heaven right now. And in fact, we as adopted sons and daughters of God are worshiping now behind the veil by virtue of the priestly ministry of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. In verses 14 through 16, the author tells us that Jesus is the superior high priest. And now in verses 1 through 10, he expounds upon and tells us why he is the superior high priest in greater detail. Uh, The first word we see in verse 1 is the word for. For every high priest. And when we see that little word for, that tells us that the author is making a turn towards argumentation, towards giving more justification, more reason for what he had exhorted or what he had said before. It's a little different. We see the word therefore when we come to a verse or a chapter, and that tells us the author is making a turn towards application. But here, that little word for tells us it's an argument toward, excuse me, a turn towards argumentation. And what we have here is he is continuing this exhortation back in verse 14, where he, the author tells his original audience, God tells you and me, commands us, says, let us hold fast our confession. And what he said in the rest of verse 14 through 16 was to supplement that. So also here he continues that. And it is also the little four here in verse 1 is also further argumentation for even what we say and what we see in verse 16. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For this is the reason why. That's the intent. That's what God wants to engrave in our heart. So, as we're looking at the qualifications of the inferior old covenant priest, let's look at the first qualification we come to in verse 1. And so, are you sitting down? Okay, ready? The first qualification is he has to be human. Okay. Now, 
Now, when I say that, that might seem a bit banal. It's like, okay, well, what, what, you know, thank you for that. That helps a lot. Uh, but also remember the original audience. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, all the way through the end of chapter 2, the author spent a great amount of time in the entire book, and especially at the opening of the book, delineating and bringing out how Jesus is superior to the angels because there was error and there was problems and heresies that were floating around in the world at that time that were even creeping in and impacting that original Jewish audience. So that's part of the backdrop there. But even more importantly, the author wants us to understand this sets the foundation of that surely the qualification of the old covenant priest was that he would be human, but more importantly, that lays the foundation for the superior new covenant priest, the man, the human Jesus Christ. And he begins, verse 1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God. So we get a double dosage there of men. He's taken from among men and he's appointed on behalf of men. And part of this is understanding that when we think of the offices in Scripture, in the Old Testament, you can think of the kings and the judges and the prophets. Uh, these offices, these men in those offices basically took God's rule and brought God's rule, God's ordinances, God's law, the word of God to men. But the priest does something in reverse. The priest takes men, takes men and women to God. And that is why a priest must be from among men, why he must be taken from among men in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 1 continues there. Now, to the original Jewish audience, that would help them understand and let them know that he's talking about the full range of the high priest's ministry. He receives the gifts and he directs the worships. It would also bring to mind the grain offerings of Leviticus 2, as well as the blood offerings of Leviticus 3 and 4. So, in total, the entire ministry of the high priest is what he is describing here to set the stage for the future final superior high priest. So the first qualification, again, is that he is human. The second qualification, and we'll spend a little more time on this, is that he must be caring and compassionate. We can put it this way, the high priest's hands must be accompanied by the high priest's heart, his heart for the people, his heart for the sheep. It is both duty, the duty of the hand, and the delight of the heart. Uh, delight in being obedient in the ministry to the Lord and for the Lord. And delight in loving and caring for the people. What he says in particular here is, he says, he can deal gently. Deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. Uh, deal gently there, it comes from the Greek word metra. Uh, excuse me, metropatheo, metropatheo, literally measured passion. It's basically a word that describes the middle between two extremes. You see, the situation is as human beings, as fallen human beings, we are creatures prone to extremes. We're like the swinging pendulum on a clock where we swing over to one extreme, we swing over to the extreme of legalism, and then we swing back over to the extreme of licentiousness. Or you can think of any other example as well. 
And what the author is bringing out here is the bearing along gently of the people that are entrusted to the high priest is to walk by God's grace and mercy the center path between the two extremes. We could think of another example. This could be, for example, the middle road between the extravagant grief of panic of, of, oh no, the sky is falling, woe is me, there's no hope, where there's almost a paralysis because you're so stricken by grief. Or at the other end of the spectrum, the utter indifference of, eh, that's a shame, and then you move on. No, this is bearing gently, dealing gently alongside one whom you feel their pain or weakness. So you share that with them. Now, having said this, Again, this is the qualification of an old covenant high priest. The main point of the author here is not talking about Christian leadership, but the point is very well taken. In the same way that the high priest's hands must be accompanied by the high priest's heart, so also the pastor's hands, the elder's hands, the deacon's hands, the Titus to woman, the Christian's hands must be met by the pastor, elder, deacon, Titus to woman, Christian's heart of both duty, God commands, God saith, thus saith the Lord, and delight in serving the Lord and delight in ministering and loving and dealing gently with one another. And we could ask the question back here in the text, uh, with whom is the high priest to be caring and compassionate? Is it the wise and well-behaved? No, it is the ignorant and the wandering. Literally, the ignorant and misguided. So, God uses the word sheep for a reason. Ignorant and misguided. The ignorant, the ignorant, the word here, ignorant, this brings out the imagery of mariners, of, of sailors who are without compass, adrift on a starless night, on a stormy sea, in a ship with no rudder, far from the safety of land. That's the picture, the imagery that the ignorant is brought out here. Also, when we think of the word ignorant, if we think of it in the context of our English understanding, which comes from the Greek word, which means literally no knowledge, now, we may think there's some kind of neutral or at least some possibility of neutrality there, but, beloved, understand this. Ignorance of the things of the Lord is always culpable. No man or woman has the freedom to say, well, I didn't know that. God demands upon us to know his. So even if it is from a lack of knowledge of what God commands, that is still a guilty, that is still a culpable ignorance of things of the Lord before God. The ignorant and the misguided. Now, misguided is the word planao. We get our English word planet from it. So, what he's talking about, it's a heavenly wanderer. And this same word planao is also translated as deceived or led astray. For example, in James, James 1 verse 16, it's translated as deceived. James 5, 19, it describes one, a man or a woman who strays from the truth. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they use this word to capture what was written in Jeremiah 23, verse 17, about the stubbornness of the heart. So, again, God calls us sheep for a reason. But as we move on to verse 2, or continue on verse 2, we see the author giving further argumentation, further justification, further reason. He says, look at the text, since he himself also is beset with weakness. Verse 3, and 
Because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, and then here's the kicker, so also for himself. So this begins something that the author will continue to do, especially through the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7, which is to talk about the problems of the Old Covenant high priest. And problem number one for the inferior Old Covenant high priest is he is also a sinner. He also is in need of atonement and forgiveness. And that's why he has to offer an offering on behalf of himself first before he can even do it with the people. And, of course, this is a very powerful contrast. Remember, again, back in chapter 4, Jesus as the high priest in verse 14, yet without sin in verse 15, in contrast to the old covenant high priest. And to give you an idea, in Leviticus 9, verse 7, we read the words that Moses said to Aaron. So, Brother Moses, the messenger of the apostle, says to Brother Aaron, who would become the high priest, says this, come near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering so that you may make atonement for yourself. Then make the offering for the people. And so that is the problem. He is a sinner, but that is also part of the reason, the justification of why he should deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Now, Here's an illustration to help us understand the kind of humility that was demanded from the high priest. One of part of the elaborate garb of the high priest was the breastpiece of judgment. In Exodus 28, verse 29, Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. And it's kind of interesting if we think of the... Uh, the guys on the bicycles, uh, they're, again, my understanding, they're in the Melchizedek priesthood. But if they, wanted, if they wanted to be taken a little more, captured a little more attention, maybe they could go around like in the Aaronic priesthood with a, a robe and an ephod-type apron and a breastpiece and shoulder omelets with a turban with jewels encrusting all of them. And, I mean, that would really capture people's attention. But be that as it may, I digress. The point being here, beloved, is the breastpiece of judgment ought not try to fit over a puffed-up chest. So the office of high priest was the most exalted office, the most exalted position in the nation of Israel, but his ministry was to be, watched this, motivated by service and marked by humility. And again, the qualification here is for the Old Testament high priest, but what great exhortation and reminder for all of us, especially those of us that are blessed and burdened to be in Christian leadership. And above all else, the high priest was to point people to God, not to self. To take people to God, not to self. Arturo Toscanini was an Italian conductor. And he was conducting a symphony at Philadelphia Symphony Orchestra in 1930. And one of the pieces he did was Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This is one of the most difficult pieces to direct, if perhaps not necessarily because of the technical makeup of its composition, but certainly because of its hallowed place in the annals of classical music. And the music, the rendition was so majestic and so beautiful that when the piece was finished, the audience stood up and just gave a 
thundering standing applause, and round after round of thundering applause greeted them. Toscanini took his bows again and again. He turned around to the orchestra, and they bowed, and they bowed, and the, uh, the audience continued to clap and cheer, and the orchestra themselves were clapping and cheering and smiling, and it just continued on. Finally, Toscanini turned around from the audience and addressed the orchestra, and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I am nothing. You are nothing. Beethoven is everything. And he was directing the attention, even though he was the conductor, he was directing attention to the one who authored the composition. And beloved, that is a beautiful picture of the role of the high priest and really of all of us who name the name of Christ. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. I am nothing. So, the high priest is human. He is to be caring and compassionate. The third qualification, he is called by God. And the point here is the high priest wasn't elected through some kind of democratic process. He was appointed by God. That's why the author says in verse 4, and no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. In for example, 1 Chronicles 23, verse 13, you'll read these words about the divine calling, the divine appointment by God of Aaron. It says, the sons of Amram were Aaron and Moses. And Aaron, watch this, and Aaron was set apart to sanctify him as most holy, he and his sons. So it even talks about the successive generation that comes from that. He is set apart by God. And We'll pause here for a second. We'll again remember that this is the superiority of the Son. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, he is infinitely superior to the prophets. Chapter 1, verse 4, slash 5, to the end of chapter 2, superior to the angels. In chapters 3 and 4, he is superior to Moses and Joshua. Now he is superior to Aaron. And the author picks that up. And what he says here in verse 4, again, is no one takes the honor to himself. It is a divine calling. It is not a human calling. And there are multiple examples, beloved, in the Old Testament in situations of men who had the audacity to take it upon themselves and take on the ministry without the calling of God. For example, in 1 Samuel 13, King Saul, he became impatient and he took the role of the priest upon himself. And God came and through Samuel poured out his judgment on Saul and said, told Saul, if you had obeyed me, if you had done what was right before me and not committed this great sin, I would have established your throne. But because you committed this great sin, you will not have the throne. The throne will be given to David, who is a man after his own heart. Or turn for a moment to Numbers chapter 16, the rebellion of Korah. Korah and Dathan and Abiram were Levites. And at the beginning of chapter 16, Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, they rose up before Moses in verse 2. And they're rising up in rebellion to Moses. Who do you think you are? But then look at verse 8. I'll read verses 8 through 11. After he turned his attention from rebelling against the authority of Moses as God's apostle, God's messenger, he turns his attention to wanting to usurp the role of Aaron as the high priest. Number 16, 8. Then Moses said to Korah, 
Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And that he has brought you near Korah and all your brothers, sons of Levi's, with you. You see, they weren't satisfied with their exalted position of being Levites. But he says at the end of verse 10, And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? And as you would read the rest of Numbers chapter 16, Moses calls to the rest of Israel and says, Come out, come out and away from Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Separate yourself from this wicked sin. And then Moses puts on his prophet hat and he says, If I am speaking, if I am not speaking the truth about the judgment of God because of this great sin, then, and if uh, Korah and Dathan and Abiram live out and die natural deaths, and I'm not speaking for God. But if I am speaking for God, may the ground open up and swallow them. And as he was even finishing those words, the ground indeed swallowed, opened up and swallowed up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in their rebellion. God poured out his supernatural judgment on men that had the audacity to assume the call of ministry, or assume the office of ministry without the divine calling. Again, this is about Old Covenant priests, but part of the problem in the church today is there are so many men in ministry that are there when God didn't place them there. And it's difficult enough, you, you have, and you have the ministry of the uncalled. And it's difficult enough to be in the ministry when God calls you, but to be in the ministry when God doesn't call you, uh, don't be handcuffed to that person because the ground might open up and swallow them. Well, Back on task, beloved, that is the qualifications of the inferior Old Covenant priests which sets the stage for the qualified superior New Covenant priest, high priest, the man Jesus. And what we'll see in verses 6 through 10, or excuse me, verses 5 through 10 are four marks of this qualified one. We see his dignity, his eternality, his reality, and his finality. First, beloved, the first mark of the qualified high priest Jesus is the dignity of his divine calling. And the point here is, as part of his humanity, we see that Jesus is just like the other priests in terms of his appointment. The words, so also, right there at the beginning of verse 5, so also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. That brings out his humanity. But then we continue, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That brings out his deity, his humanity, and his deity. One person, two natures. And this latter one is a quote from Psalm 2, verse 7. And that's already been quoted back in chapter 1, verse 5, where we see and we should understand that this begotten son is not a son by creation as the angels are. He's not a son by adoption the way you and I are. But he is a son by substance, by essence. His begetting is eternal, not temporal. He is eternally the, eternally the son with his one divine nature always being God, is God and always will be God, and he took on the second nature of man at his incarnation. 
one person, two natures. That's why in John 1.18 you read these words, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So there is dignity of his divine calling. And by the way, here in Hebrews, if you remember the qualifications of the high priest, they're human, they're caring and compassionate, and then they're called by God. So now what he does is he takes them in reverse order. That's why the, digni the dignity of Jesus' divine calling is the first one we get here. And that was the kind of Jewish way to emphasize that middle portion there, the calling of God. All of the marks of his qualification that we see here are, of course, perfectly important. But this leading one is emphasized in that manner. The dignity of his divine calling, secondly, is the eternality of his priestly ministry. You see, the old covenant priesthood is according to the order of Aaron. The new covenant priesthood is according to a fascinatingly mysterious figure. We are introduced here to a man that has appeared only twice before in the pages of Scripture, all the way back in Genesis, and then a second time in Psalms. And he's not been seen since then, but we encounter him now, this man, Melchizedek. Verse 6, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 4. And what we see here is bringing together the juxtaposition of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 is that Jesus, the Son, is, he, Jesus is the royal son of Psalm 2, and he's the royal priest of Psalm 110. And the situation here is he is a priest forever. Problem Number two, which is embedded here, and it'll become explicit in later portions of Hebrews. So problem number one for the old covenant priests was they were sinners. Problem number two is they would die. There would be a terminus. So a priesthood would come to an end when that priest died and stayed dead. But what he says here is Jesus is the priest forever. He is the priest once for all. So the dignity of his divine calling, the eternality of his priestly ministry, the third mark of his qualification is the reality of his human suffering. Beloved, again, the king has become our brother. The judge has become our savior. That's why, look at verse 7. He says, he writes, <clears throat> In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears. And this is one of those passages that emphasize the humanity of Jesus. And when he says, in the days of his flesh, he's talking about his life and ministry on earth. Now, to be sure, on this side of the incarnation, Jesus has flesh. He has, there is a glorified flesh. There is a glorified body in heaven, which is forever joined with his divine nature. But in the days of his flesh, he's talking about his non-glorified flesh, from the time of his birth to the time of his death. And this is the reality of his human experience. And what the author is bringing out here is that the man Jesus was also beset with heartache and grief of humanity. He, one author said it this way, he gave up the glory of angels for the spittle of men. Friend, 
when the Son came to earth, when God the Son came to earth as a human, he didn't come in a chariot of fire. He was born as a baby. He was laid in a feeding trough where animals fed out of. He was born and laid in the manger with his deity veiled. He, Jesus the man, pitched his tent where men crucify other men. He tabernacled among blasphemers and gamblers. He came to be tempted and confronted with a full frontal assault from the devil. And that is part of understanding the life and ministry of Jesus in his human frailty, why we understand Jesus the man, the text says here, offered up prayers and supplications. Prayers, that's just the general term for prayers in the New Testament. Supplications, the word there has a greater emphasis on entreaty. It comes from uh, original meaning of extending out an olive branch for an appeal. And the examples of him crying out of his prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. Examples par excellence that we could think of would be what? Gethsemane and Calvary. To be sure, those are examples, again, most powerful uh, with tears and loud crying and prayers and supplications to God his Father. But understand this, it's not limited to that. It's not limited to just a day and a night. It says during all the days of his flesh, literally his entire life, he was wrestling and praying and crying out and weeping. This describes his lifetime holy war, his lifetime battle against sin and against temptation, against the pull and tug of temptation, which in every way, in every time, he didn't budge an inch until the rope of temptation snapped. But... <clears throat> As we move to the latter part of verse 7, we move from, in one sense, the agony of Gethsemane to the victory over the grave. He had this prayers and supplications to the one able to save him from death. It actually would be much better translated to save him out of death. He's, talking, he's not talking about the one who would save him from dying, he came to die. That baby was born to have nails driven into the hand. The little pink hands would one day have nails driven into them. That beautiful little baby, innocent, perfect brow would one day have thorns plunged into it. It pleased the father, Isaiah 53, to crush him. So he came to die, but he didn't stay dead. He prayed to the one, to his God, who was able to save him out of death. It's speaking about the resurrection. And, look at the text, he was heard because of his piety, because of his purity, because of his perfect obedience, he was heard. One note, <clears throat> it's not included here, but we know this from other passages and another powerful contrast, another element that brings out the superiority of Christ, Aaron offered animals. Jesus offered himself. That is the infinitely more valuable sacrifice. We continue verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Here's another verse, and in fact, this one is one of those verses that really drives home the humanity in some ways that might even make us a tiny bit uncomfortable. 
And, and see, this is part of that middle balance between the extremes. We absolutely maintain the deity of Jesus. And, and in our defense of the deity, we need to be careful that we don't sacrifice or undermine his humanity. They're not in conflict. They're not in contrast. He is 100% God. He is now 100% man. And this brings out his humanity. He learned obedience as he grew. He voluntarily set aside his rights and privileges as the eternal son for the salvation of his people. In the context here of his suffering, he poured himself out for your and my eternal well-being. That is what the author is reminding us here. Jesus became, the son became what he was not, human before the incarnation without ceasing to be what he was is and always will be divine god that's why he is the god man c.s lewis in his book miracles wrote this quote the central miracle asserted by christians is the incarnation they say that god became man every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this in the Christian story, God descends to re-send, or to re-ascend. He comes down, Dr. Lewis continues, he comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots of the seabed of the nature he created. But he goes down to come up again and, watch this, bring the ruined world with him. This was in my heart when I was part of the beautiful celebration of life worship service we had celebrating the life and the death of our beloved brother Luis Ayala because the sun came down to bring the ruined world, ruined believers, ruined men and women who become believers back up with him. So beloved, amen. The dignity of his divine calling, the eternality of his priestly ministry, the reality of his human suffering, finally, the finality of his sacred work. What was the second to last word he uttered from the cross? To Telestai, it is finished. Look at what he says in verse 9, and having been made perfect. Having been made perfect. Now, that of course, having been made complete, having finished what God the Father intended for him to do, having completed and finished what he intended to do. This is not, of course, describing that he was somehow imperfect in a sinful or in any kind of way, but he did what he intended to do. It's the same thinking that we already saw. If you want to turn back a couple pages, chapter 2, verse 10, the author there writes, Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, watch this, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. God the Father perfected the man Jesus through his sufferings to bring many sons and daughters to glory. He blazed the trail of salvation. He led the way in his humanity into heaven as our forerunner. And when it says back here in chapter 5, verse 9, having been made perfect, this means he went from untested sinlessness to tested sinlessness. He went from unproven obedience to proven obedience. He went from being the perfect son, he continued to be the perfect son, and became 
the perfect Savior, our, your perfect Savior, if you are trusting in him alone by faith alone. If you ask him truly from your heart for forgiveness, having been made perfect. Uh, The verse continues, 9, he became to all those who obey him. All those who obey him. Now, we know that we are saved from Genesis, all, from all of Genesis, certainly Genesis 15, 6, all the way through Revelation. We are saved by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. But the faith that saves us produces works by virtue of our new birth in Christ. What we have here is this is the obedience of faith here in Hebrews 5, verse 9. And when we say all those who obey him, we can ask the question, who is numbered among all those who obey him? The Jewish original audience, but Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, male and female, the learned and the uneducated, the slave and the freeman, all together, you can look at it this way, one died for all. One man died for all. And as such, verse 9 continues, the source, he became, to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. King James Version says the author of eternal salvation. Beloved, dear friend, because he is a priest forever, the salvation he bestows, he gives as a gift, is an eternal salvation. And this is the beginning of a strong theme and thread of eternality through Hebrews. This is the eternal salvation. There is the eternal judgment in chapter 6. The eternal redemption and the eternal spirit, the eternal inheritance, the eternal covenant, all these we see in the book of Hebrews. And we can say, we can append to the statement before, one died for all, once for all. That is the eternal salvation. One died for all, once for all. And if you're interested, that's the name of the sermon title for the sermon here today. Finally, verse 10 being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, We were introduced a second time in Hebrews, fourth time in all of Scripture to this man Melchizedek. And we'll see him six more times appear in the book of Hebrews. If we were to measure the importance of biblical figures and take what we kind of assess as their importance and then divide it by the number of appearances. And simple math, hopefully most of us understand that when we have a uh, smaller denominator, you end up with a greater result. The whole point is if we take the importance of the figure divided by the number of appearances, Melchizedek wins hands down by orders of magnitude. Ten times he appears in Scripture. Abraham appears 230 times. Moses, 833 times. David, some 1,080 times. Melchizedek is most fascinating, only twice in the Old Testament, and eight times in three chapters here in the book of Hebrews. And what the author does as we go from chapter 10 to chapter to verse, excuse me, from verse 10 to verse 11, which we're not going to do here, the author leaves the theme of Melchizedek. He's, he's saying, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek. I mentioned him twice, verse 6, verse 10, but I have to deal with another solemn warning passage in the book. He has to deal with a serious problem. He says, in a sense, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek, but you're not ready. You're dull of hearing. 
And that's what he deals with with, verse, with uh, chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 18 at the end. But then in chapter 7, verse 1, but I'm going to tell you anyway, and I'm going to tell you about Melchizedek. So we have to be patient. But here's a brief taste. In Genesis 14, we are introduced to Melchizedek. The situation is there is the first world war, four kings against five kings. Abram gets involved to rescue his nephew Lot. He's interacting with the king of Sodom in chapter 14, verse 17, and then that's interrupted by three verses with Melchizedek, who's called the king of Salem, and then Moses picks up the king of Sodom. Huge contrast between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem, which means the king of peace. His name, the author of Hebrews will tell us, chapter 7, verse 2, his name, Melchizedek, Malach, Sedek, king of righteousness, the king of righteousness and the king of Salem. He comes out of nowhere. He comes without any genealogy. God called Abram. Abram is the one who receives the land promise, the seed promise. And before Abram even gets into the land of Canaan, there's a believing Canaanite there who precedes him. And Father Abraham, or Father Abram in Genesis 14, I mean, you can't get much bigger, much more weighty, better than that, Father Abram, or Father Abraham, gives tithes to Melchizedek because not only is he a king of peace and a king of righteousness, he's a priest of the Most High God. Some 500 years, some 500 years later, so he appears some 500 years before God even establishes the Aaronic priesthood. And then you go forward another 350 years. You've had 350 years after the establishment of the Levitical and Aaronic priesthood. David writes Psalm 110, which is some thousand years after the appearance of Melchizedek. And David leaps frogs back after 350 years of visible imagery of a Levitical priesthood. David writes Psalm 110, jumps back over to Melchizedek and says, you are a priest forever. The national priesthood that is the bedrock of the nation of Israel, which is important, is lesser, it's inferior to the universal priesthood of Melchizedek, which predates even the Levitical priesthood. And I could wax on, but I'll draw myself in now. Most fascinating person, we have to be patient because we have to wait to chapter 7 before we pick that up. I will say one thing. The first appearance of the word priest is in Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. And to finish up, let's go to Revelation chapter 20 and look at the last mention of the word priest. So we have learned clearly that Jesus is the perfect, superior, final high priest. But there is another priesthood. In Revelation 20, verse 6 is what I want to focus on. But I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, which describe the millennium. Revelation 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed." After these things, he must be released for a short time. And then now in verse 4 is where we start to kind of get a sense of us coming into the picture. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. 
And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Now, beloved, drink in verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. That would be us. That would be the tribulation martyrs that we just read of. That would be those who are trusting in Christ. In verse 6, over these, the second death, the eternal death, the spiritual death, has no power. But, watch this, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Beloved, dear brother and sister, in Christ, you will be worshiping, you will be ministering as a priest of the Most High God alongside Christ during the millennium. And in fact, the Apostle Peter calls us, calls all believers, the family of God, the temple of God, the building of God, the body of Christ, calls us a royal priesthood. That's the final culminating effect and result of the superior new covenant high priesthood of Jesus. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the newness of life. Thank you, Lord, for pouring yourself out in your humanity for our well-being, for our shalom, for our eternal salvation. Lord God, as we now approach the communion table, help us to approach it remembering who you are and what you have done. Help us to approach it with a solemn, somber heart and also with hearts filled and overflowing with joy of the great victory that you accomplished for your glory and for our eternal joy. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we now approach the table. Amen.